Welcome back to Lethal. Let's talk about death row inmates. This week, I'll be covering a Florida death row inmate. This week, I'll be covering a Florida death row inmate, George James Treple. He was convicted for murdering his neighbor, Peggy Carr, by poison. You know the drill. Before I jump into the case, I'm going to talk about Florida death row. Florida has two options for execution, lethal injection or the electric chair in the execution chamber located in Florida State Prison. The electric chair is only used if the inmate requests execution by electrocution. That's pretty wild to me. So I was going to start by discussing the protocol for the electric chair. There is a chart recorder. This is a device that measures and records the electrical voltage for the electrocution. There's a chin strap used and it is leather and it goes under the nose and over the inmate's chin and mouth. This is used to secure the inmate's head to the chair. The electrocution cycle consists of three cycles. First, 2300 volts at 9.5 amps for 8 seconds. The second cycle consists of 1000 volts, 4 amps for 22 seconds, and the last cycle is 2300 volts, 9.5 amps for 8 seconds. That's a total of 30, 38 seconds of electrocution. An electrode gel is applied to the inmate's head and calf. This gel intensifies the electrical conductivity. An emergency generator is also present in case a power goes out at the prison. A headpiece is assembled for the inmate. This consists of leather, a brass electrode, a strap, and a veil that is placed on the inmate's head. A high-voltage electrical lead is attached to the headpiece. There is also a leg piece assembled for the inmate. It consists of the same material used for the headpiece, and this is applied to the calf area of the inmate's right leg. The process starts by staff shaving the inmate's head and calf area. The inmate is given blue dress pants and a white button down to wear during the execution. Next, the staff escorts the inmate to the electric chair. A last statement is recorded, then next the staff proceeds with the execution. Twelve witnesses are allowed to sit in the witness gallery. This includes family of the victim and family of the inmate, media representatives, nurse or medical technicians, people that are approved pretty much ahead of time. All right, since I covered the basics of the electric chair, let's go ahead and jump into the case. So once again, I have a glass of wine and I'm ready to dig into this case. This week, I'll be covering inmate number 121965, George James Treple. George is serving at the Union Correctional Institution in Rayford, Florida. This story starts a little different. There wasn't too much background about George's childhood, so we're starting at a different point in, in his life. So George married his wife, Diana, in the 1980s, and they bought their first home in Alturas, Florida. Peggy Carr, their murder victim, and her husband, they called Pi, moved in next door to George and Diana in 1988. Alturas was a safe neighborhood. Everyone was known to keep their windows open and their doors unlocked. This house consisted of Peggy Carr, her three children, and her husband, Pi Carr, and his two children. Unfortunately, the Carrs had a long road ahead of them with their neighbor, George. There was an incident where George threatened to kill one of the Carrs' children. He told one of the boys, I quote, I'm going to kill you. 
I'm not sure what they did to upset him, but probably teenagers being teenagers. When I read up on the family, it seemed like the boys had friends over all the time. So they just hung out in the driveway. They had music playing. They were fixing up their cars. So nothing really out of the ordinary. There was another incident in June 1988 where the Carr family received a a threat through a letter that stated, I quote, Two weeks to move out of Florida forever or else you will all die. The family didn't take this threat too seriously. They laughed it off and swept it under the rug. October 1988, Peggy Carr became suddenly ill. Peggy knew sign language because her parents were deaf, so she signed to her children to let them know how much pain she was in. She was rushed to the hospital and had to be carried in because she was so weak and she was in so much pain. She was asked all the standard questions. What did you eat last? What did you drink? And she didn't have too many answers for them. Their children, Travis and Dwayne, also experienced similar symptoms as Peggy. The boys were rushed to the hospital to be treated as well. The doctor treating the family, Dr. Hostler, a neurologist, suspected the family was poisoned by thallium based on the symptoms they were experiencing. Thallium is very toxic. It has been banned by the Food and Drug Administration since 1982. Thallium is used in rat poison. Doctors thought this could have been an accidental poisoning until her two sons came in. Peggy's condition worsened quickly. She was placed into a medical-induced coma because of how ill she had become. She lost weight very rapidly. She was losing clumps of her hair and had no brain activity. She was disconnected from life support in March 3, 1989. The doctor tested the entire family for thallium in their system because it was too coincidental that three family members were this ill. Peggy had 55 times the amount it takes to kill a human. The two sons were also poisoned with thallium. The two boys were so sick that their hair was also falling out and they weren't able to walk because of how painful it was and because they were so weak. Travis had 19 times the amount of thallium it takes to kill a human and Dwayne had 25 times the amount of thallium in his system. With so many of the family members being poisoned, it was suspected that maybe something was toxic in the house. Thallium is odorless and tasteless, so the family could be getting poisoned accidentally without even realizing it. Police went to go check out the car's house and to see what could have been poisoning them. Police grabbed over 400 items, any drinks or food products in the fridge, ice, and any household items, so they could be tested for thallium. They found empty Coca-Cola bottles in the household and thallium was detected in those bottles. The police were able to trace where the bottles were produced by by the lot number. Coca-Cola had confirmed that they had no reports of their products being tampered with at the time. Police started to move into a different direction. The family was questioned and asked if they had any enemies. The police started to dig up some pretty interesting things about the Carr family. The Carrs, Peggy and Pi, had some problems in their marriage. Pi had multiple affairs within a couple of months into their marriage. Peggy found out and moved out of the house with the kids. They actually moved to a hotel. Pi begged Peggy and the kids to come back home, so they eventually moved back home and pretended like nothing happened. Pi had actually taken out a large life insurance policy on his wife, Peggy. She had no idea. She found out on her own. She told one of her sons that she was worried that Pi did this behind her back.
This almost makes you wonder if the motive was for Pi to kill his wife Peggy for the life insurance money, but Pi had been poisoned by thallium as well. Thallium was actually found in all the family members that lived in the house. The only reason police stopped suspecting Pi was because his son Travis was one of the very ill ones in the family. Okay, let's not forget the incident that occurred on June 1988. The Carr family received a threatening letter. It was not signed, but the family had a pretty good idea who sent it to them. The FBI was called in to help local law enforcement. The profile was a white male in his 30s that had a high IQ and was most likely watching the family suffer. The police were able to put the puzzle pieces together pretty fast. One of the neighbors saw Peggy and their neighbor George get in a screaming match a couple months before they were poisoned. When police confronted George, he was a white, short, middle-aged man with a thick beard. The police interviewed George and asked him why he thought someone would want to poison the Carr family. George responded by stating that maybe this was done so they could move out. So this definitely incriminated him. George didn't make things better for himself. George's alibi was that he would go to his wife's office every day, and then he would go to his own office, which was next door to his wife's office. Police found out that he had no office next door to his wife. He actually worked from home. The police also thought that he was able to enter the family home because they would always leave their door unlocked. Okay, so you know what's coming. A life rule. Always, and I mean always always lock your door. I don't care if you live in the nicest neighborhood in the world. Always lock your door. This is a simple and easy rule to follow. Just remember, someone is always watching. So keep your family safe. Keep yourself safe. Just lock the damn door. Okay, so let's get back into it real quick. <laughs> George was very capable of pulling off this crime because he worked from home. He was always at home by himself no one managed him, no one saw what he was doing, and he was able to watch the cars and see what they would do on a daily basis, when they would leave the house, when they would come back. So he was able to go in and out of that house without anyone knowing. George would also be capable of pulling off this crime because he was a chemist in an amphetamine lab years before this occurred. The lab had thallium because it was a byproduct of amphetamine. In 1975, George was fired and convicted of conspiracy to manufacture meth. If you're not convinced yet that it's George, just wait. The story gets crazier. Police assigned a special agent, Susan Gorick, to go undercover and investigate George and his wife. George and his wife, Diana, were in the Mensa group. This group consists of individuals that rank in the top 2% intellectual levels in the country. Susan, the undercover police officer, attended a Mensa murder mystery weekend organized by George's wife, Diana. Susan, the undercover police officer, went by Sherry Gwynn. This undercover police officer had a whole backstory she came up with so she could fit in at the Mensa murder mystery weekend. Police picked Susan to go undercover because she was smart and quick on her feet, so they thought she would be perfect. So, she went to the event, she introduced herself, and a pamphlet was distributed for the event, and it stated, I quote, A few voodooists believe they can be killed by a psychic means, but no one doubts that he can be poisoned. When a death threat appears on the doorstep, Prudent people throw out all their food and watch what they eat. Hardly anyone dies from magic. 
Most items on the doorsteps are just a neighbor's way of saying, I don't like you, move or else, end quote. This is pretty much a confession. This pamphlet was handed to Susan by George himself. Unfortunately, Susan wasn't able to get the information she wanted from George at the retreat. Susan had to go one step further into this undercover process. She became friends with George and started to hang out with him after the retreat. They would go on picnics, dinners, and museum dates together. This was only supposed to be an eight-week undercover process that changed into eight months of undercover work. George ended ended up telling her that he was planning on selling his house and was planning on moving. Susan made a deal with George and would rent out the house, and he agreed. This was the opportunity the police needed to get into that house. Once she had access to the home, the police searched the residence and found powdered thallium in George's desk. The police also found a journal with information about poisons and information regarding an autopsy detection of poisons written in his journal. The police found a book called Pale Horse. This book describes using thallium to poison people. And lastly, they found a bottle capping machine. This machine would be used to replace the bottle caps of the Coca-Cola bottles given to the Carr family. George was charged with seven counts of poisoning. April 5, 1990, George had 15 counts against him. Count one was first-degree murder of Peggy Carr and six counts of attempted first-degree murder of the entire family poisoned. He had seven more counts of poisoning food or water and one count for tampering with a consumer product. January 7, 1991, George's trial began, and on February 6, 1991, the jury came to a decision. The jury found George guilty on every count. The jury recommended a vote from 9 to 3 that George should die for the murder of Peggy Carr. George's wife, Diana, was never charged for anything. Diana was never charged, but George's attorney did try to pin it on her during the trial, but George was very unhappy that they were trying to pin it on his wife, but I think she did have some involvement personally. George filed for an appeal on April 2nd, 1991. He claimed the death penalty was not appropriate. His counsel was no help and that the evidence was inadequate to charge him. He was denied multiple times. The judge found three circumstances that increased the severity of the criminal act. This included being previously convicted of another capital felony, being a great risk of death to multiple people, including multiple children, and committing a crime that was premeditated. He carefully removed the bottle caps, inserted the poison, and carefully replaced the caps and placing the tampered bottles in the family home. The family later said they should have been more suspicious of the note and when the Coke was found in their house because the family never drank Coke. They were more of a Pepsi household. So always keep your eyes peeled. After hearing about this killer neighbor, maybe you should take a step back and start analyzing your neighbors more. Don't be so trusting. Also, isn't it crazy for Halloween how kids go trick-or-treating and they eat candy from complete strangers? I'm not hating. Halloween is my favorite holiday. But if your kids go trick-or-treating, please check their candy before they eat it. I know my parents had a really strict rule with me. No candy until they checked my bag. So stay safe and keep an eye out on your neighbors.
I hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review on Apple Podcast. Go follow my Insta, lethal underscore podcast, and feel free to shoot me an email at lethal.tcpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for a new case and a new inmate. I'll be covering a new death row inmate in Florida. All the information used in my podcast came from the following sources. Murderpedia, Justia U.S. Law, Vengeance, Killer Neighbors, www.dc.state.florida.us. All right, well, I can't wait to see you next week.